This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Now, as I reminded everyone on the last episode, I'm going to do it again. Make sure you check out our brand new website, ContraZoomPod.com, for all your ContraZoomPod needs. That includes all past episodes, interviews, guest appearances, blog, posts, everything you could possibly want. It is all there. Uh, So please check it out, bookmark it, because it's going to be updated all the time, including every show. The other thing that I would love for you to do is if you give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes or Podchaser or wherever you listen to podcasts that allows reviews, please send a screenshot to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com and I will send you some free ContraZoom swag. We're making it real soon and once I have uh, those names, I'll be able to send it out to free and you'll be the coolest person ever. So, without further ado, we are now going into part two of our From Wings to Parasite 2008 to 2017 episode, where we rank each decade of Best Picture winners 10 years at a time and and seeing how that goes. And joining me, as always, is Stephanie Pryor. Stephanie, thank you for joining me today. Hey, hey. So... This is our last time doing an official top 10 for these mm-hmm. Best Picture winners for a very long time. Yeah. Are you sad? I am a little bit. I, I really enjoy doing this. It's it's kind of fun to go back and revisit these movies. You know, so much of, of this podcast is forcing myself to do homework of different <laughs> movies I want to watch. And sometimes I'm, I'm not the type of person who likes to rewatch movies very often. And so it's kind of nice to... Be like, oh, I'm going to talk about this, so I need to rewatch it. And so it's kind of cool. What about you? Are you feeling anything? <laughs> I was like, am I feeling what? Um, yeah, I mean, I enjoy going through these and watching them again, especially ones that, you know, were on my blind spots or ones that I was excited to to rewatch to see if I had a new take. Um, I'm not going to miss the time crunch of, like, having to watch 10 films in a short period of time because I do prefer doing other stuff amongst movie watching but it's definitely a fun exercise and um a true test to to movie lovers <laughs> all right so we're gonna take a short break and when we come back we're going to go into our top five I want to ask you what part of the country you come from I originate from Canada I guess where that is oh, I know where Canada is I've been there myself well travel for a slave Solomon Northup is an expert player on the violin. I was born a free man, lived with my family in New York. Be good for your mother. Until the day I was deceived. To Solomon. Kidnapped, sold into slavery. Okay, and I guess before we get started into the top five, I'm going to reiterate the bottom five list. So coming in at number 10 was The Hurt Locker. At number nine was Slumdog Millionaire. Number eight was The King's Speech. Number seven was Birdman, and number six was The Artist. And coming in at number five is 12 Years a Slave from 2013, directed by Steve McQueen. In the antebellum United States, Solomon Northup, a free black man from upstate New York, is abducted and sold into slavery. This is sort of a a bit of a tricky film to, to rate because it is such a significant historical document. There... There weren't a ton of people that were able to fully and articulately describe the true horrors of of slavery from the perspective of 
black people like Solomon Northup who wrote a book based on his experiences of being a slave for 12 years. And that's what the movie is adapted from. So this is about as true of a story as you can get, because I I believe McQueen tried to be as faithful to the recreation of this as he could. And and Chudal Ejiofor does give it as all. So it's, it's sort of tough to really critique this movie because you know, going in that it's going to be a bit of a brutal watch. And I will say all five of these top five movies in our decade list, I can safely say we love them all, right? Yeah, definitely. So, so saying that, did you face a sort of similar problem of how do you rate and rank a movie like this? That is, you know, more educational than maybe some other movies are. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, when I was going through my, the list of the 10 and, you know, kind of reorganizing them to, to fit where I saw that they would land you know, I was struggling with, well, this movie seems to do more for film, but this movie seems to do more on an emotional level, but this movie seems to be, you know, more important to, to culture, especially currently. Um, so it was like, where, where, how do you rank so many apples, oranges, pears, lemons, and dogs amongst, you know, whatever. So it just, it was kind of tough, but um, having said that, I, as you said, I think these five movies left, we all really loved and, um, have very little to critique on. So I'll just go in and say that this movie is a hard watch. It's an important watch, but I think it was done really well. And the acting is incredible and makes you really invested into what's happening. And it's not just the shock of the stories, which, you know, which have been told, before and you know we're all pretty familiar with this made you really look at it and made you really feel what it would be like to have your freedom and have it taken away from you which is even scarier Mm -hmm. yeah we we really do get put into solomon's shoes of of understanding everything that he goes through especially since his character is so well educated and can read and write and he's an accomplished musician everything that a normal person can strive to and achieve. And then seeing, you know, we as viewers know the the slave owners and the, the plantation workers and things like that, how they're being lied to and, and manipulated. And this shows how Solomon was able to sort of see through all of that but he had to still pretend like he couldn't because his life was at danger. So, so there's a very interesting balancing act of, of doing that. Um, you know, there's, there's a really interesting shot where later in the movie he tries to, uh, he convinces one of the white plantation workers who is there because he was a criminal to mail a letter for him to his attorneys back in uh, the North and he gets uh, ratted out and, and punished. And so he burns the letter late at night. And as the the flame is sort of dwindling on this piece of paper and it's all being burnt up, the camera sort of turns around and shows the reflection in Solomon's eyes. And at the same time, we see the flame in his eyes burning. Out, and it's just like such a poignant shot mm-hmm. in the film of how he's tried to carry this flame in hope that he would get what's done. And that was sort of like the last 
breath of hope that he had, and it was also burning out like the flame of his letter. Yeah, it was a very thoughtful way of showing that, and I think it was very meaningful. Um, so truly well done. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a few things like that, like the the riverboat that transfers the slave south sounds like a meat grinder that's about to chew them up. You, you see this paddle flipping and going in the water, like, and it gets louder and louder and more intense, and it, and it sounds like the meat grinder, like these these people are about to be put through and it's it's a, a very hard to to watch a lot of these sequences you know you can't talk about this movie being hard to watch without talking about the not quite lynching but where he's tied up with the rope around his neck and he's basically standing on his tippy toes and the camera is just static for several minutes as we're watching him struggle but then you see people in the background going about their lives because not their lives but their days because they cannot go and save him. And so and you see people watching him. You see people from the house watching him, the white people. And all of it is just such an intense watch to do that. And it's it's probably the most difficult part to watch. I know a lot of people maybe will, will point to uh, Patsy being whipped, Lupita Nyong'o's character being whipped by both Solomon and uh, the plantation owner. But for me, Solomon hanging by his neck basically is the, is the more difficult part to watch. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on your take. I, I think the difference there is that, you know, because of the static nature of the camera while they're wa- while we're watching Solomon on his tiptoes, you kind of have that feeling of being of losing your breath and not being able to catch your breath as well. And, mm-hmm. and it feels very kind of suffocating and like you just need him to be cut down and in order to have that kind of relief. Where um, in Pat, the Patsy scene, you know, there's things happening in between whippings, which is still incredibly hard to watch, but I think that gives you a little bit of breathing room to kind of regain composure before going in again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of interesting, you know, I don't know how, how to really describe this, but like you sort of see several degrees of slave owners, but they're all complicit and evil, even if some of them are nice. You know, you, you get the bandit Cumberbatch character who is the first slave owner of of Solomon and he accepts his ideas of, of how to transport lumber and gives him a violin which you know is such a token gesture it it sort of reminds me a little bit of of some of the things going on today in, in the black lives matter movement where you know you get statues being forcefully taken down or companies being like yeah black lives matter and it's like, well, that's great, but, you know, we just want police brutality to end. This isn't really what we're asking for. And, and sort of the Benedict Cumberbatch character is sort of the epitome of that, of, uh, of someone who thinks that they are a good person. But in reality, they are still extremely complicit in the fact that he owns people, sells people, and has people on his plantation who will abuse the slaves uh, along with working them long and brutal hours. So there mm-hmm. is no such thing as a nice slave owner. Yeah, totally agree. And then it just sort of gets progressively worse, ending with the Michael Fassbender character. Um, yeah. Now, it, it's sort of interesting. This movie sort of hinges towards the end on a bit of a, a white savior trope where uh, Brad Pitt's character comes in, who is a Canadian, who doesn't 
under who does not like or appreciate the slave system and is the one who finally delivers a letter to Solomon to the north that gets his freedom. Uh, and, and I know when the movie was sort of came out, it was criticized for that as having the white savior character. But at the same time, you know, that really did end up happening. And, and Brad Pitt, who is a producer on the movie, did not plan on being in it. But when they were meeting financiers, um, they, people told Steve McQueen that they would finance it if Brad Pitt was in it. And so that's the part that Brad Pitt took uh, because of it. And so it's sort of a weird sort of circumstance where if you want to be truthful to the story, you need to have that character, but at the same time it reinforces the white savior trope. Was that something that, that you sort of struggled with at all? Yeah, it definitely crossed my mind upon watching. I was like, oh, well, this is kind of typical about how these movies are usually portrayed, or especially like white characters in, in these types of films. But then thinking I was like oh, wait but this actually did happen so it was confusing for me on how to feel about it mm-hmm. it's it's interesting you know I, I think back to the episode that I did on uh, five bloods and celebration of black cinema and Antonio Fori, one of the guests on it talked about how he was kind of tired of seeing the the sort of slave experience movie and it's something I've I've sort of you know, grappled with a little bit in my head because I, I do believe that these are stories that need to be told from many different angles, but at the same time, a lot of them can be repetitive at times. This, I believe, is the absolute pinnacle of of what, if you want to call that a, a genre of what it is. And every movie that's going to come out afterwards is absolutely going to be compared to this. I, I look at something like Harriet, which came out last year, which I had so many problems with in completely wasted uh the lead performance by um i'm forgetting cynthia revel who is a, a terrific actress and i can't help but sort of compare it to 12 years of slave where it's, it's very similar to this idea of being enslaved and fighting for your freedom and and i, I wonder if you know we can really focus on on black artists telling stories they want to tell without being forced to do it only within the confines of the slave story or antebellum story. Um, and so I'm really curious to see where things are going to go from here as, as far as different movies that are being greenlit and being produced and whose voices are getting to tell their stories. Yeah, I think it's an exciting moment for film with where it can go and the different stories we're going to start getting um, especially with the five bloods. I think that was definitely a new story Mm -hmm. from a black perspective. So I think that, you know, there's going to be so many new things coming our way, which is super exciting. And that I'm really happy about. Mm -hmm. And then again, we need people other than just Spike Lee from being able to make these types of movies. Uh, I think if I did have a, a bit of a criticism is there's no real indication of the passage of time. It sort of just moves from one brutal experience to the next. I know the movie is called 12 years a slave, which means that he was a slave for 12 years. And we see him with uh, two main different slave owners and then one temporary one where he's loaned out for a season or rented out, I guess for a season. But overall, I guess it's because the character has no indication of how much time. It just feels like this is his, his new unfortunate life. But I I do wish there was a bit of an indication of of what time is passing by. Yeah, I I understand what you're saying. Definitely. You don't feel the length of time has been 12 years. 
So um, that might have been kind of a miss, but um, I don't know how they would have done that. Yeah, without it being too stereotypical, yeah. like celebrating birthdays yeah, or Christmas or yeah, whatever. Which then in, in that case, you need to show like multiple ones mm-hmm. to show that it's like, oh, this is Christmas X year. This is Christmas Y year. This is Christmas Z year sort of thing uh, to really to, to show that. I think maybe the only way would maybe if a child was born and we sort of see the child growing up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they really do much to age Chudal Ejiofor. Uh, like I think maybe if by the last couple of years, I know a little bit, they, they sort of gray him up a little bit, but I think maybe if they, if they, if they aged him a bit more, it would show a bit more passage of time. So yeah. I, I mean, know. yeah, you don't get that true indication until he is reunited with his family and his kids are, grown and have kids of their own basically which which maybe is the point of it of yeah he's missed all that yeah doesn't feel to him like he's missed 12 years because when he left they were little and you know you'd expect when you return they're going to be the same but obviously not and also realizing how much he missed in their lives because his daughter is married yeah you know when when he was abducted his daughter was must have been four or five years old and now she's married uh, and has a baby, and so he's a grandfather. So he misses all this time of not only watching his kids grow up, but seeing his daughter get married, seeing his daughter have a child, all these sort of important life milestones that he missed. Uh, that, I think, that is a, a good indication of the passage of time because it kind of hits you really hard at the very end, but I would have just appreciated maybe some more subtle things throughout the movie that showed the passage a bit better. Maybe, maybe, but just talking about it now, it kind of makes me appreciate it more that there wasn't fair. That's fair. All right, moving on. Okay. Moving on. Our number four movie Argo from 2012 directed by Ben Affleck. What happened? The six of the hostages went out a back exit. Where are they? The Canadian ambassador's house. You got revolutionary guards going door to door. These people die. They died badly. White House? Who wants the six of them out? What we like for this are bicycles. Deliver the six bikes, provide them with maps. Or you could just send in training wheels and meet them at the border with Gatorade. It's gonna take a miracle to get them out. Acting under the cover of a Hollywood producer scouting a location for a science fiction film, a CIA agent launches a dangerous operation to rescue six Americans in Tehran during the U.S. hostage crisis in Iran in 1979. Um, this movie does a lot for me. It's exciting. It's entertaining. It's thought provoking. Um, the performances are great in it. I think the directing is also great in it. And it has a lot of things that I enjoy in just casual movie watching. One thing that I'll start off right from the bat is I remember at the end when they're on the plane and they're going to take off and it's like, soup the they're like right behind them they're tailing them like oh we have to catch them they're about to get away i turned to you and i was like do you think that actually happened that field was very hollywoodized and sure enough we look it up and they weren't close to catching them at all really yeah, and i think they went like in the middle of the night or first thing like super, super early in the, morning, in the morning so there was yeah. no like no high there, yeah. security there to make sure so that was kind of like oh well that devalues the story for me a bit but still an entertaining movie and i liked everything that it did and I think Ben Affleck was um, overlooked. 
Yeah, not getting a, a best director nomination, sure. which is crazy. I think it's interesting. The the opening sequence I think is, is terrific when it's the the U.S. embassy actually being stormed, and in the credits they show the comparison photos, and it's just absolutely spot on. And they got a lot of the footage by placing cameras in the hands of extras, basically to film it the way it would look from the photo recreations. And so it's very interesting. And you're watching this. And you're also learning about the history of the U.S.'s involvement in Iran and, you know, the rest of the geopolitics of that area. And it's so riveting and intense. And it basically sort of sets the mood of, like, the U.S. getting its violent comeuppance. They overthrew a democratically elected leader who wanted to nationalize their oil. And the U.S. and the U.K. were like, no, that's our oil, even though it's not. And overthrew him with a coup and installed uh, their own king. And it was someone that was did not care about his people. And eventually... It gets he gets overthrown and the Ayatollah Khamenei comes in place and installs a very rigid um, extremist country uh, where a lot of the the issues that sort of plague Iran, you know, in the coming decades up through recently is is because of this and you can't help but be so angry and frustrated at the US always meddling in other countries affairs and continuously overthrowing democratically elected leaders that are there to work with their people and not with the US. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it shows a good um not a good example but shows what comes from that and how you know I don't even know how to put it but just like don't stick your nose in things. Yeah, I would have liked if, if you know, they do such a good job in the intro of sort of setting that stage up, but I would have liked it if, you know, there was a bit more talk about what it meant to overthrow a country and install mm-hmm. a puppet leader and, and how that sort of backfired on them, you know, a little bit more. And, and there really isn't any sort of discussion about it within any of the characters. I would have liked maybe... Um, the American embassy workers who are, who are stuck staying in the Canadian consulate, if they maybe have a discussion about the reasoning behind the geopolitics, that sort of would have been nice to talk about it where they understand their country's um, uh, complicence in this matter. Yeah. Cause like you say, the, the beginning does a really good job of setting that up. But then I think by the end of the film, you're back to that U S is hero. U S is great. Look what we did. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting, but I, you know, we talked about Ben Affleck getting snubbed and, and I think you can't, you know, really praise him enough for what he does. There, there's so many interesting shots like the, the Ayatollah, the Ayatollah's eyes are always watching. There's, there's a bunch of posters and it sort of reminds me of uh, 1984 when we watched that where um, the big leader posters. Yeah. Big brother is always watching and that's sort of interesting where it almost sort of feels like the eyes are moving with the camera. Uh, so it's really interesting in that sense. Um, yeah. There, there's, this is just like, this is, this is a bit of a hard movie to, to kind of critique because it's, more of a fun movie com- compared to other ones. So it sort of places emphasis on not necessarily the action, like an action movie, but the action as in the the kinetic movement of it and the thriller aspect of it, where Affleck does a, a very sound job handling all of those things with the editing, with the pacing, all that really works really well for me. 
Yeah, agreed. I love what he did. And I also love how he portrayed his character. He's very kind of like one note, some might say, but I think that that was needed in this type of person, a CIA agent who has to come and de-escalate, debrief, and, you know, take out these people. I think it was needed that he needed to kind of be like emotionally cold and just. And he does a good job where for this whole time, you know, he's very, he's, he's so business. He's willing to take the risks that he needs to, because he actually cares about these people. Mm -hmm. And so he, he sort of seems like such a hard ass. And there's, there's two characters, two embassy workers who are sort of leery about this guy who's just going to come in and magically save all their lives and, and, perfect everything and aren't sure if they can go along with the plan. And so he basically pulls them aside and drops his facade and tells them his real name, his real profession, the fact that he's got family, he's got a son and all this sort of stuff. And it, it's kind of makes them realize of, Oh, he has just as much to lose as we do. Um, if not more, because it it would be so easy for the U S government to just pull him and leave us here. Yeah, definitely. But, I think, you know, this is interesting. This is so much about Ben Affleck's performance. He really does sort of dominate the the plot, the screen, almost every single scene is him. But then you get such a great ensemble cast where they all sort of shine in their moments, but for the most part, they don't really stick out enough. You get some really great stuff uh, with the trio of Alan Arkin, uh, John Goodman, and Brian Cranston all doing more comedic work and they do some really interesting stuff, but like they don't really have a ton of screen time. They don't drive the plot a ton. And then of course all the embassy workers, which are, which are great, you know, Tate Donovan and Clay Duvall and Scoot McNary and Rory Cochran, all these people do some really interesting things. Um, But this is really the Ben Affleck show. Yeah, it kind of is. I think he's got such a good, um, supporting cast around him that it also just enables him to do you know what he does in this film but i think it all works and i really liked um i can't remember the character's name or the actor's name now the the um hostage or the guy who's stuck there who can speak uh farsi farsi yeah who can speak farsi yeah um i think he does a really good job because he's kind of you know shown as this timid uh, meek guy. He doesn't want to take any chances. He's too scared to take this chance of going under this facade. But then, you know, when push comes to shove and they're in this critical moment, he steps up, which I don't even know if this is even true to the <laughs> story. But, you know, in the film, he steps up. He's cool. He's collected. He does what he needs to do. And I think he, that's his moment where he, like, shines and proves his point in his you know, reason for being in this film. Yeah, that would be Scoot McNary. Mm-hmm. Um, a big complaint about this movie is the fact that it plays such fast and loose with facts. The biggest thing being that this was mostly a Canadian operation. This movie screened at TIFF, it premiered at TIFF, and there was a lot of negative reception about that. So they added the end title cards talking about how the Canadian government was the ones that were mostly responsible to it. But in the movie, they still make it seem like it was mostly the Americans and that they basically allowed the Canadians yeah. to take the credit, which is a little weird. There's this moment where I can't remember who it is. And they're like, Oh, and no one will ever know that we did this yeah. because the Canadians are taking credit. Yeah. Which was a little, which was a little weird. They probably could have maybe cut that scene a little bit, uh, to not include that. If, if they did want to try to focus it being on, on 
more of the Canadian involvement. But the thing is, at the end of the day, this is a dramatic recreation of an event. And I don't know, I'm, I'm fine with movies taking liberties that they need to in order to tell the story the best they can. And for that, it would have been less of a focus on Ben Affleck's character and more of a focus on other people. And while that might've been fine, but the way this movie was structured, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. It would have been a completely different movie. Yeah. Yeah. And the way this movie is and the way it's scripted and shot and all this sort of thing, it works for me. So I'm fine with the historical inaccuracies. If I want to learn more about this, I will read a book about it or watch a documentary. Yeah. And I think that's what some of these films do too, right? It like it, it brings up the story. And if you're interested and want to know more, you know, it leads you to that. Whereas if you told the story as it is out front, a lot of stories are usually pretty boring. They're yeah. not, you know, told like a movie would be told there's long periods of time in between where nothing happens or there's, you know, you go to an airport at 4am and nobody's around. So you're not being chased. Like that's not mm-hmm. a movie anyone's going to watch. So if it's not going to be watched, the story is not going to be told. The story is not going to be known, which isn't going to lead to interest to learn more. So there's kind of like a give and take on, on, on the leeway you can have with um, telling true stories. But I think in the end it does help to get the story out there and the people who are interested in what actually happened are going to then go and learn. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you can now say, okay, this is a movie about the Iran hostage crisis. You know that the U S embassy was stormed. Some U S embassy workers were able to escape. They hit out at the Canadian embassy. They were eventually rescued and brought back home. That is, that is the story. That is the story. The way they tell the story is what Argo is. And if you want to know more of the finer details of who each of these people are and who the different jobs were that the people did, read a book about it. Like it's yeah, true. I, I just know that that's, that's, it always comes back to Argo's biggest criticism is that it's not historically, historically accurate, but that seems to be basically the criticism of almost every big biopic is it's not historically accurate. Well, I don't care. You're never going to please <laughs> yeah. everyone. Yeah. One last final note that I would be remiss. Kyle Chandler is in this and I love Kyle Chandler and I will watch any movie with Kyle Chandler in it. That doesn't really seem like a note on the movie. That just seems like you having a crush on him. Moving on. Coming in at number three is the shape of water from 2017 directed by Guillermo del Toro. If I told you about her, princess without voice what would I say secret research facility in the 1960s, a lonely janitor forms a unique relationship with the amphibious creature that is being held in captivity. This movie is a grown-up fairy tale movie, which Guillermo del Toro has done a couple times, Pan's Labyrinth being the, the most notable one, and he continues this, making it very dark and very adult in, in theme, content, execution, everything about it. But the, the core elements, this is still a fairy tale fable, probably closer to the way the original fairy tale fables Mm -hmm. actually were, where they were meant to scare kids, not meant to teach them life lessons and how to, or how girls to find a husband sort of thing, which the Disney fied version basically is, but you can see it sort of like an almost one-to-one comparison with something like beauty and the beast, where a woman falls in love with a creature that is not similar to her and, and how their relationship is able to grow from there. 
this movie, Del Toro, you know, if you're a fan of Del Toro, you love his aesthetic, you love his style, his pacing, his color choices, his costuming. And this is sort of like Del Toro at his like peak Del Toro-ness of everything going on. Everything is this sort of like nuclear green color and everything is so vintage and, and you can touch and feel everything that's going on and you can smell things and, and the presence is just so much there and you really get transported into this movie. Yeah, a hundred percent. Something I love so much about this movie is is the what it brings to your senses. Everything feels so saturated in color and in life and in, you know, everything that it is, including the soundtrack and the the music that's being played is so like warm and, and you can just like sink into everything. It feels like you're sitting in this big giant cushy velour couch, which is amazing. Um and kind of what you said, like you can almost smell it, you know, when you're in the, where they're the laboratory, where they work, um, you know, it, everything is so clean, not clean in the sense of it being sterile, but like, you know, marble floors and blank walls, but everything's kind of looks a little dirty and dingy. You can almost smell what it would be like there. Whereas versus, you know, um, in her apartment where there's all these like books and things are stacked and it's overcrowded and you can, you can almost smell that it's like stuffy and dusty in there. And I just really super appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the big thing is Michael Shannon's character basically represents the, the perversion of the American dream or American exceptionalism using religion as a cover for, for sexism and bigotry, taking what he wants without regards to others. You know, he talks about how he went down to South America and, and ripped the creature out of the water and fought him and brought him back to the U S like, which is basically the story of slavery. And which is why King Kong is sort of a metaphor for slavery as well, where this idea of, you know, we're contrasting it to Argo a little bit where the, yeah. once again, it's the American raw, raw, but this is sort of putting Americans on notice where sometimes maybe it takes a Mexican director to point that out much like how 12 years of slave was directed by a British filmmaker pointing out America's biggest flaws. <laughs> not to say that Britain's not in that. No, of course not. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I think also, you know, despite the fact that this movie sort of looks like a, a twisted version of the idyllic 1950s, it probably shows more truth to the era than most media. We're, we're so conditioned to this, like, leave-it-to-beaver type of sanitize where everyone is, oh, shucks, and no one swears, and everyone is a kind person that wears their pants up nice and high. But in reality is, there was a lot of darkness to the things that were going on behind the scenes. They were just able to mas- to, to mask it all by being like, this is a man's world you can't say or do things like this in in regards to to women and children and and people were kind of quote-unquote put in their place very directly by those in power and and this probably is much more realistic people swore back then like we're naive to think if they didn't swore we just didn't see it in movies or tv shows yeah and and the violence and the abuse and all that sort of stuff is, is very much more realistic despite the fact that it's shot to be this hyper realism. Yeah. And something I really love about this film is, you know, the minorities are the, are the basis of this film. And for, you know, the main character, Sally Hawkins, she's mute and, and everyone who can speak for, for her is a minority in some way, you know, you've got Richard Jenkins who is a homosexual. You have Olivia, 
um, Spencer, Spencer, who is a uh, African American, everyone who's able to speak for her isn't, you know, a privileged or a, a majority in culture, which I think is really great in contrast as to, you know, someone lending a hand who has that who has that upper hand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think a sort of funny thing is the facility that they work at uh, is called Occam's like Occam's razor, which uh, purports that sometimes the simplest explanation is the correct explanation. So you could say, yes, there is a magical creature that has healing powers and blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, you could just simplify and be like, oh, this is just a creature that loves a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's sort of interesting. I I like that sort of subtle little nod. It was only there for like a half a second shot in the background. They they do a really good job. Um, But along those lines, like, if beauty can love the beast, why can't Eliza love the creature? Like it's basically the same thing. It, it almost reminds me yeah. also a little bit of like the little mermaid where it's sort of a, a reverse Reversal. Ariel. <laughs> That's true. Um, Ariel's not a human. That's she's very true. fish. She's woman. turned into a human. She is, but she's still a fish woman, which is very much like this creature. Who is also mute. Yes, exactly. That's, That's what I'm saying. It's a reverse Ariel. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the, I think you can't talk about the the color palette enough for this. I, I love so all good. the the green going mm-hmm. on, the the green key lime pies. Oh, they look so radioac- radioactive and gross. And of course, when Eliza eats it, she realizes how disgusting it is. And we think that Richard Jenkins' character loves it too, but it's just because he's got a crush on on the guy who runs the place. And he goes to put the pie away for leftovers. So he opens it. His entire fridge is filled with these key lime pies that have like one bite taken out of them. So even he doesn't like them. Yeah. I love Richard Jenkins in this film. He's like one of my favorite things about this movie. I just think he's so good. Like the, can you call it dialogue? The back and forth that he has with Eliza and just his little comments. Like he's who I want to be (laughs) when I grow up. He has a great little final touch right when, um, the creature is about to jump into the harbor and uh, earlier he had gotten his hair regrown because he's balding based on the creature touching his head. So he takes off his hat and he gets the creature to put his hand on his forehead one last time and hope that he'd grow a little bit more hair. And the creature just kind of looks at him and takes Richard Jenkins hand, puts it on his head and goes, yeah, all right. Yeah. I like you too. And so it was just like that, like one last hope of like, come on, make me not bald. (laughs) Yeah. I think he's great. Cause yeah, he's just so rooted in like humanism, you know, he is helping her and there's all this stuff going on and he's scared of, of the creature at first, but he's still funny. And when it comes down to it, it's still, you know, I want something out of it. (laughs) Yeah. A little bit. Now you talked about with Argo, you know, having your guy Kyle Chandler. This movie's got your guy uh, Michael Stuhlbarg. Oh my god, another good, great actor. Um, this is something more recent though, where, where I've always loved Kyle Chandler. Just recently coming into Michael Stuhlbarg, Stuhlbarg, and any movie I've seen of him in it, I'm just like taken aback by by his performance, but also just his face. There's something about him where I just want to like give him a hug because he's like the sweetest. I would trust anything that comes out of that man's mouth. (laughs) Uh, The last thing I want to say is like, uh, there's a sequence where Eliza is dreaming and she's singing and it sort of mirrors to me, the artist sound Mm -hmm. dream. Mm -hmm. Um, Even the final dance sequence, because she ends up dancing with the creature. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of cool. It was, it made me think of that too as well. 
Yeah. Probably because Del Toro is sort of referencing similar points. You know, musicals in the 1950s and 40s were obviously at their heyday, so that's what he's recreating. And I wouldn't be surprised to learn if the the dance sequence directly is taken from a different film that Del Toro loves, because Del Toro loves inserting his uh, influences in his movies, whether subtly or more overtly. And this would probably be one that would be a little bit more overt. Yeah. Our number two movie is Moonlight from 2016, directed by Barry Jenkins. Who is you, Sharon? Hold on, son. Try not to remember. Try to forget all those times. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you're going to be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you young African-American man grapples with his identity and sexuality while experiencing the everyday struggles of childhood, adolescence, and burgeoning adulthood. This movie was a super interesting watch for me for the first time and watching the life of a, a young man from, from boyhood to adulthood, um, struggling through so many different aspects of life and coming to, you know, to know who you are and, and how how to act in front of everyone. And you, you really are on this journey um, with little Chiron with Chiron and um, every step of the way. And it's just so disheartening to see what he has to go through. And even finally, when he is an adult, you know, you learn he's still struggling with being who he is and knowing how to act and, and just being comfortable in his own skin. So it's such a sad tale but i think it's such an important movie for so many you know people to see this is this is probably one of my favorite best picture winners ever so i'm i'm i was so happy to get to revisit this they do such a good job and like right from the very first scene of one meeting one of his street level drug dealers we get this swirling camera going around them and it just sort of is telling us what to come of this very Epic, but also intimate story with some really great flourishes involved. And so getting to rewatch is just such a treat being able to sort of pinpoint on some of the smaller details. You know, we can't talk about this movie without talking about Mahershala Ali, who's only in the first sequence, but leaves such a memorable presence over everything. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the, there's the famous swimming scene where he, he teaches Chiron how to swim. But for me, he earned his Oscar in his final scene at the, the dinner table, table. where uh, Chiron asks him if he's a drug dealer because his mom is an addict. And that's where he kind of, you know, really breaks down. He's this tough gangster drug dealer guy, but also he's not. He's He's so in touch with everything that's going on and sort of feels that like, you can see how this is a character who, despite maybe wanting to not live the life he is, understands the socioeconomic realities of where he lives and where he's from, that that was all he was able to do. And he's just trying to be the best at it as he can without being, you know, your typical violent person. And and just seeing the two of them together, everyone sort of points to Ali, but I think Alex Hibbert, who plays young Chiron, gives him just as much for that scene to work. And, and that's where Ali won his Oscar for me. 
Yeah, that's a great scene. And that's one that really stayed with me as well. I just really, just the sadness and what kind of washes over, over him as Chiron walks away after he's like, are you a drug dealer? Do you sell drugs to my mom? And he can't even answer him because Mm -hmm. he knows that the truth and the answer that Chiron already knows. And just to say it out loud is way worse than to, he can't even look him in the face and it's terrible. It's, it's such a, such a gut wrenching scene. Yeah. And, you know, speaking about, scenes with Ali in it, um, the swimming scene, the music in that is just so simple, but I just absolutely love it. The, the very slow uptick of the violin going do, 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 and getting faster. It's just so beautiful. And that, and for me, that's like the best moment of the score in the film, but the whole score through everything is so beautiful. One, one of the best ones, you know, I'm talking about other great scores from, from this decade with Birdman, but this one I think is is more of a traditional score and just done so beautifully. Yeah, agreed. I love this score also. I like also how the movie sort of shows how most queer people understand their sexuality at a very young age. Right from a very young age, Chiron is sort of questioning what it makes him different than others, why he doesn't want to you know, do the traditional playing boys games and things like that and is more introspective. And when he's in high school, you know, he obviously knows he's different, even if he doesn't know why he's different. But, you know, you you talk to most queer people and they maybe they don't admit out loud that they are gay, lesbian, trans, bisexual, whatever they identify as until they're a little bit older. You ask them when they probably started questioning it. It's usually at a very young age. And I know that's something a lot of people who have difficulties understanding queer people will use to argue of, well, you can't allow a little boy to call himself gay. He doesn't even know what it is. Well, the reality of the matter is that for the most part, they know, they know that they're different than, than other people. And I think this movie does a really good job of sort of pinpointing when you sort of start questioning things, maybe not directly to other people, which this movie does show, but definitely to yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a good point. And of course, all the, the queer love scenes are, are shot so beautifully. You know, there's the, the scene on the beach in the middle sequence when Chiron and, and Kevin hook up for the first time. And, you know, it's a sort of beautiful thing where you you sort of feel the, the butterflies and the rush of emotion that you get when you're, when you're kissing someone for the very first time or, or something like that. And, you know, seeing the hand dig into the sand and you just sort of feel that rush of emotion that they're going through. And then, of course, at the end of the movie, when, when Kevin and Chiron meet up again and you don't actually, you don't see them kiss. You, you just see them hold each other in each other's arms and it's just so beautiful and tender and it's not about the act of sex or penetration or anything like that it's about the the romance it's about the connection that you make with other people and this movie shows that so well yeah there's one scene right near the end where uh, he's telling kevin that first of all they're like trying to figure out why did you come here? Why Why are you here to see me? Well, why did you they're, call They're me? doing a bit of a dance They're there, like, yeah. well, nobody wants to say why. And then he, he comes out with it. He's like, um, no one has touched me since then. Or no like, man has touched no me since then. No man has then. touched me since then. And just the look on Kevin's face, like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, he just, the emotion and the feel, he just drops everything. He's like, okay, that's enough. Like, 
we know who we who we are, who each other are. You're comfortable here. I'm comfortable here. This is a safe space. And that was just a really touching moment for me. Mm-hmm. Especially since we learned that Kevin is at least bisexual because he ends up having a child with a, with a female classmate of his. And there's some indication that they had a bit of a relationship and then they broke up, but now they're still friends, even though they're not in a relationship together. Uh, so there, there's definitely some indication that, that Kevin is most likely bisexual where uh, Chiron, I understand it is only attracted to men, but there's this like one extreme close up where it shows when they, they first recognize each other in the restaurant of, of Kevin and Shiro in the final sequence and that acting, the wordless acting, it just sort of like melts your heart where it's just like all the history of them is both remembered and forgotten at the exact same time. And it's just seeing someone who you just have such a, a deep and personal connection have felt so strongly for, for the longest time and just seeing the both of them just sort of, be surprised, be excited, be happy, be content. There's so many different emotions going on and you're just so intensely focused on their faces. It's just a beautiful moment. Yeah. I think this movie is just filled with those moments and, you know, not just like subtle, quiet moments, but also really big, powerful moments as well. Um, Kind of like when Sharon is, it is quiet scene because he's seeing his mom yell at him, but you know, it's such a big emotional moment. And then also um, in the middle sequence, when finally he gets his courage or, you know, strength to stand up for himself and he, he comes into class and he's got a presence. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this guy's entered a room. He has a purpose for being there. And then he, he eventually, you know, brings the chair down on, on the guy who, who beat him up before. And you almost, you feel happy at that point for him. Yeah, like you, you, you obviously don't wish it had come to that point, yeah. but it's him finally standing up for himself and, and acknowledging himself as a real person that deserves space. Yeah, and the way it plays out, obviously, is unfortunate because he ends up getting put in jail for for many years. And when a black man comes out of jail after being at such a young age without an education he unfortunately doesn't have very many opportunities to have upward mobility. And we kind of see that that's why he becomes a drug dealer again, much like Juan, which is a cycle that he very clearly did not want to be a part of when he was a very young boy, but feels that that's the only way that he can survive. So it's just a very complicated movie at times. I also like how, you know, at the end, Chiron isn't missing or needing sex when he meets up with Kevin. It's genuine love and affection that he wants. And, and Teresa, played by Janelle, Janelle Monet, is the only other person to ever show him that other than yeah. uh, Juan, played by Mahershala Ali, but consistently show him affection and love and care. And that's what he's been missing through his whole life because his mother may have given birth to him, but is not a mother in a traditional sense. She is very much an abusive person in his life. Yeah. Um, agree. Like she, she's met Janelle Monae and Naomi Harris are both fantastic in this actually. And um, it's so true. Like he doesn't have any kind of relationship that's good outside of, you know, um, those two at the beginning and just showing them that, no, he is important and, you know, he, he has a purpose in this life and it doesn't matter if he wants to speak at that moment. It doesn't matter if he's happy or sad, but the fact that he is happy or that he is sad is enough. 
And what do you think of the fact that uh, all three uh, Chirons and all three Kevins are cast? They don't really look that much alike from each other. And uh, according to Barry Jenkins, he did not allow them to meet each other on set. He wanted them to bring their own things. I still feel like they are the same character all the way through, despite the fact that they never met, they never compared performances. Like that blows my mind. Yeah. I think that's amazing. Actually, I don't even think I knew that. Um, So I think that's crazy to hear and to find out because there really did feel like a thread of connection between each performance and each, you know, different stage of their lives where you, you knew it was the same character and yeah, they might've looked a little different, but it was believable and you knew it had happened to them before and you had knew where they were coming from. Mm -hmm. Like they, they all have sort of similar personas that, that are common threads between them. Kevin has so much more confidence and assurance about himself and that carries through each one of the Kevins. And Chiron, who is so inward in everything that he does, you know, the first two, he's so scrawny and skinny. And that's, you know, you can sort of interpret it as he was never able to sort of fight for himself. Kind of like you imagine if you've got like a, a litter of puppies and there's one that probably gets left out and doesn't get the food he needs. And so he's much scrawnier and uh, shyer than the rest of them. And that's sort of how you feel about Chiron. And then when you meet adult Chiron played by Trevante Rhodes and he is jacked and you know, he's been in prison, but you also understand that him being muscular is him basically putting on a suit of armor. He's still that same inward person who has dealt with so much trauma, but he's going to make it look like he isn't. And he's going to hold his head up high and, and walk with a purpose. But inside, you know, that's not really him. Yeah, cause Even his workouts, you get to see a little bit of him working out. It's a solo um, experience for him. You know, mm-hmm. It's in his bedroom. He's doing push-ups, all these things. It's not, it's not a social thing that some people do nowadays at the gym and hanging out and getting ripped and buff or whatever. This is him. This, like you said, is his armor. This is something that he needs to do in order to get through the day. And he does it alone. Mm-hmm. Barry Jenkins has such a, a unique voice in this movie and it's all over it. I love the, the look and color of everything about this. You know, it's based on a play called uh, black boys look blue in moonlight or something like that. And, and the, the coloring of everything is, is so beautiful. They do such a good job with all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A really great film. Mm-hmm. And coming in at number one is spotlight from 2015 direct by Tom McCarthy. The Boston priest molested kids in six different parishes over the last 30 years. The church found out about it and did nothing. We haven't committed any long-term investigative resources to the case. No, we haven't. And that's the kind of thing your team would do. Spotlight. Guys, listen. Everybody's going to be interested in this. The true story of how the Boston Globe uncovered the massive scandal of child molestation and cover-up within the local Catholic archdiocese, shaking the entire Catholic church to its core. This is a big ensemble film that I feel has gotten forgotten as far as Best Picture winners go. It is much more quiet and subtle than most movies. I would compare it very directly with something like All the President's Men, which is about journalists doing journalism, not about, you know, big splashy headlines or whatever gotcha moments. This is about putting the work in, 
doing the follow-ups, doing the reporting, making sure your facts are right and educating people. And they do such a good job with that. I know, you know, we talked about Argo being a little flippant with its details to historical accuracy. I know people who have worked in newsrooms and reporters love Spotlight because they do such a good job of showing the work that needs to be done. Mm. This is a movie I adore. Yeah, I remember first time seeing it, I wasn't like too taken taken with it. It was just kind of like a basic, you know, kind of thriller movie where it has that big, like, oh, wow, I can't believe this is happening and it's terrible, but nothing in the movie actually did anything for me. But upon second viewing, I was like, wow, there are so many subtleties in this movie that you don't notice necessarily on first watch because you're more paying attention to this story unfold but if you're watching everything else happen around it and all the the churches that are in the background of every scene or you know the church bells you can hear in the background or anything it's just like it's everywhere the church is everywhere and it's closing in and it has its grasp on every nook and cranny of boston on it's got its you know thumbprint on every resident that is in this neighborhood and and furthering neighborhoods that they're going into research and do their journalism for. And it's quite amazing. And it really took me back and it jumped a lot from first viewing to next viewing on how much I liked it. Yeah. I like this even more on on a follow-up viewing, but you're right. It may not the, these, these sort of shots of the church overhanging everything might not be in every shot, but it's definitely in every scene where whether you're seeing steeples in the background or you're seeing, um, uh, archbishops at gatherings or, or things like that, where very clearly this is a town that is run by by the Catholic Church, and, and they make it very clear for all of that. So I really appreciate it. The movie sort of, you know, the plot kicks off where early in the movie there is a, a speech done by uh, a victim of sexual abuse who has created this support network and has basically been dismissed by everyone. And uh, I want to point out that the actor's name is Neil Huff, who plays Phil Saviano. He does such a good job where you watch it, you're almost made to believe that he's a bit of a kook and crazy Mm -hmm. conspiracy theorist. But with everything that we know, you can't help to look at him and be like, this is someone who has spent years yelling and no one listening to him. Of course, he's going to come off a little kooky and a little weird, but understanding his pain, I think really grounds it and sort of sets off the motion of everything that has to go on with, with Mark Ruffalo and Michael Keaton and Rachel McAdams. All of them do such a good job of, of, you know, believing their victim, believing the victims and, and chasing the stories. They do such a good job with that. Yeah. And I think, I think it's interesting because each of them, which again goes to show just the deep rootedness of Catholicism in this area. You know, they all, he even asked them, uh, what religion are you? And they're like, Oh, when we grew up Catholic, uh, I'm not practicing or I go to church with my grandma every Sunday, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. So when they're first learning of these things, they're like, no, this can't be true. Like this, this is impossible to believe. And they don't want to believe it that even though they're not, you know, practicing Catholics, they still feel that pull mm-hmm. to, to be on that side. And so it takes them a little bit, each of these characters to finally make that flip and be like, wait a minute, something's going on. And then they each have to grapple with where they've come from and, and what that means for their character now. Yeah. And they sort of talk about how since they started doing the investigation, they can't go back to the church because yeah. they feel that they're basically being complicit by uh, supporting the institutions and Rachel McCann talks about how she can't even take her grandmother to church anymore, things like that. But I think 
the main thing is like every revelation that they do figure out in this movie really hits you like a gut punch because first it's, you know, there's a couple priests and they're like, well, I don't know. And then they do the, the research and they're like, wow, all of these, you know, threads match up. This person was telling the truth. And you're just like, wow, this, like, this is people understanding what happened to other people. And then they start doing a bit more work and they're like, well, who else in Boston was involved in it? And then you realize, oh, wow, it's probably dozens in Boston. And then you're like, no, there might be as much as, I think it was like 90, something like that. And they talk about, you know, the percentage of like, I wish I could remember the numbers. I should have written it down where they're like 5% of all priests. And they do the math and they're like, okay, well, there's there's X amount. So that means there should be about 92. In the end, there's 90 priests that are clearly abusers. And it's like, wow. And then they start being like, okay, well, this obviously isn't a pocket thing happening only in Boston because they're leaving Boston and being transferred to other churches. And then they're starting to connect the dots of, is this just a U.S. problem? And then you're like, well, no, it isn't. This has to go all the way up to the Pope. And it just like every time they sort of connect the dots, which you know where it's going to lead to, mm-hmm. when they make that revelation, it's a gut punch every time. Yeah, it's like every stone that they overturn, there's more and more gross stuff under there. And they, they don't learn. want to turn over the stone, but they know they have to. Yeah. Yeah. Um there's this great little scene where they talk about how it, it takes a village to raise a child. If it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse it, yeah. which cuts directly to the Catholic charity event with all the power players there, which is like so on the nose of like, these are the people that are running things and keeping things hidden. And, you know, they do Tom McCarthy does such a good job doing juxtaposition shots where they talk about one thing and then they cut to the next thing. And that's what they were talking about. Yeah. And like, not just within the church too, but then you also have, um, like attorneys and, and people who are representing these victims and there you learn that there's one group in particular that, you know, they're representing them, but they're having them take these, these, these deals or these offers to not go public and all this stuff. They sign papers and whatever, not to disclose what's going on. And they go to them and like, how can you live with yourself? How can you def- like let them just take those deals? And he's like, I came to you. Yeah. I gave you this information years ago. And so everyone has their hands and parts in it and just nobody was listening, which is astounding. But even when people were listening, um, they too, like, didn't do enough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this is an ensemble movie, but I'd be remiss to to not point out Mark Ruffalo. He's got this great explosive speech where, for the most part, this is a very quiet movie. And his impassioned speech of, wanting to go public because it could have been any one of them because they all went to Catholic schools and all went to Catholic church and all that sort of stuff were involved in in the church activities. It could have been any of them. How are, how are other people not as righteously angry as he is in that moment is just about like the pinnacle of acting for me. And he just gives it his all and lays it out there and you cannot help, but feel that you are also sort of complicit in not being as righteously angry as he is at that moment too. Yeah. No, it's a great scene, and I think it is important that the rest of this movie is so quiet so that that scene alone can stand and be so explosive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and Liv Schreiber, I think, has a, a great, quiet, reassuring confidence to him where you're not really sure what to think about him. He comes in as being sort of uh, sort of a, a gun for hire of, of running newspapers, of turning them profitable, and you think he's just going to be uh, a stooge for the parent company to make the money and so there's a little bit of 
reticence to to confide to him. And, and when you realize that he is there to turn a profit, but at the same time, he does believe in the integrity of journalism, I think has a, a great little character dynamic to him. And, and he really sort of sells it of like, it's nice that you think of me as just this one way, but I also care about making sure the stories are right. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciated his performance and his character and what it brought to the table. What did you think of like this sort of like early 2000s aesthetic to it where it's kind of familiar to us, but the clothes are, you know, just <laughs> oh slightly bigger, baggier. The pants, the pants in this film would just get me every time. But um, the haircuts, that's, that's what it was then. And yeah. it was amazing. I can't believe we lived at that time and didn't shake our heads at what the heck we the were doing. The cell phones. Like they, they could have very easily, you know, made it as modern looking, but then just have like the old computers and cell phones. But I appreciate the fact that they kind of make them dress the way that we all dressed back then. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think my last note about this is, you know, the power of truth and in, in a free press is, is just as important today as it was then, as it was during the, uh, all the president's men era. Like it's unfortunately an institution that is dying because if it's not making money, what use is it? But there, there still needs to be a free and independent press to be able to uncover stories as big as this. Incredible. Yes. Cause like anyone can write anything nowadays, but you need, you need good publicity out there. Especially when the spotlight team says they will take anywhere from six months to a year to make a single story. That is in the world of today where you need your clicks immediately is a very rare occurrence. Yeah. Well, that wraps up our top five films from 2008 to 2017. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to do our awards. Now we've come to the part where we are going to give out our awards for best supporting performances, best lead performances, and of course, best picture. So we're going to kick it off with best supporting actress. This was a bit of an interesting category because there were several people we could pick from, but who did you end up going with, Steph? My final selection was Janelle Monet. I think she has a smaller screen time in this movie, but I feel like her presence is so important to the plot of the film and the direction that Sharon's story takes. So I think what she brought to the table and just the, the level of warmth and understanding her character had really touched me. And I really loved what she did with the performance. That's a really good pick. I, uh, I also picked a performance for Moonlight, but I picked Naomi Harris. I know it's, one, we kind of overlooked both of their performances really when we were discussing Moonlight it, it, because it's so hard when you try to describe the whole movie and our thoughts on it to get to some of the supporting performances. But both women, I think, were, were fantastic. But I really like the character arc that Naomi Harris went on where the very first time we see her, she's clearly working as a nurse or something like that. And then you see her slowly turning into a casual drug user. And then the second segment, she's a full-blown addict. And then the third segment, she's recovering and much older. And so it's just like a, a really great total career arc. And she has a great 
albeit poor, but still motherly instinct to all the uh, actors who play her son in the different parts. And she did such a good job with that. So uh, I'd be remiss not to include that. And I especially love the shot where it's a, the, the the frame rate is sped up when she's yelling at Chiron in the first sequence and you can't hear anything and you just see her bedroom door at like neon pink and it kind of looks like the entrance to hell. She goes in there and slams the door shut and so it's just like a really indelible image for me as far as what this movie is. Yeah, she was great. Uh, and I totally agree with your reasonings. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Janelle Monáe was very close to to being a runner-up for me. Um, you could also go Lupita Nyong'o from 12 Years a Slave. That was one that was was heavily considered for me, too. Yeah, I also had her on my list, as well as Octavia Spencer. I thought she did a really good job in um, The Shape of Water. <laughs> okay, so moving on to supporting actor. This was probably the hardest one of all for me. Uh, and I just changed it right as we are about to record this. I originally had Jeffrey Rush, but uh, I had to cross that out and go in a different route and not one that probably people would expect. But uh, Mark Ruffalo, mm-hmm. specifically because of that one scene that I talked about, but the whole movie, you know, he, he's basically sort of the, the real conscience of the film as far as the viewer who who gets righteously angry at all the injustice that's going on. And he's the one that really cares the most of wanting to do right by the victims of abuse. And I think that makes him very relatable. And, and Mark Ruffalo really gives it his all. I know, I know a lot of people really like Mark Ruffalo, but... I've never really considered him like a top actor, but this was this was a performance that uh, that sort of changed my mind on him. Yeah, he did have a, a great performance, and he is definitely one I also considered as well as Jeffrey Rush. But I actually landed on Richard Jenkins from The Shape of Water. I really liked um, the relationship that he had with Sally Hawkins' character, and you know his kind of trajectory of from not wanting to help her to finally deciding to help her and and coming to, to realize that this, you know, um, this fish character, it was just another version of himself almost, which he needed to help. So I really liked what he had to offer and his performance I found was funny and heartwarming and, and just really human. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one too. And there's so many I could have picked. Like, I think the obvious one probably would have been Mahershala Ali from from Moonlight. But I also considered pretty much any of the Chirones in that movie yeah. as well. Um, you mentioned Richard Jenkins in Shape of Water in Twelve Years a Slave. If you wanted to go the bad guy route, Michael Fassbender does something truly evil in that movie. Birdman, you can go Edward Norton, King's Speech. We talked about Jeffrey Rush. Like there were so many fantastic performances Mm -hmm. in this decade. All right. So moving on to best actress, Stephanie, who you got? I almost had to make a coin toss. I had two up front, but I finally decided to go with Berenice Bijot from The Artist. I think... Something that's interesting is that um, my runner-up is Sally Hawkins, and so both best actresses actually didn't have any speaking lines, which I thought was kind of interesting. But I finally landed on Bijou because I think what she she had to do from in, in case of her character arc, starting as this kind of nobody and then becoming this uh, starlet in the eyes of Hollywood and then having the soft turn of trying to take care of of um, 
John DeJarian's yeah. yeah, character. So I liked the arc that she brought and she also had to do all this dancing and, you know, really evoke emotion from her whole body. So that's why I kind of landed with her. Now, if anyone had to complain that she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars and you chose her as Best Actress, do you have a rebuttal for that? Uh, she is, I would say, co-leads with DeJarian. Like, both of their stories are being told at the same time. So that's where I would go with that one. I agree, yeah. Um, you mentioned Sally Hawkins as your runner-up. Unfortunately, I feel for this decade is very short on lead female yeah. performances where it's literally only those two um, you can maybe argue Freda Pinto and Slumdog Millionaire, but I really don't think she's a lead in that because it's not her story. Mm-hmm. So it really comes to those two. And they are both fantastic. I did go with Sally Hawkins. She does so much with, in a world where everyone is actually talking, where yeah. she is able to be just as heard as everyone else in the movie and sort of stands her own both next to Octavia Spencer, who is a very loud personality in this movie and next to a fish creature, which could have easily overshadowed her. Mm -hmm. But I think she does a great job communicating the love and the affection that she has and understanding of how it feels to be different from other people. And if you just are attentive and pay attention and communicate, you can understand where other people are coming from, which is really, frankly, the message of the movie. Yeah, and what I did like about her performance is um, the facial expressions she had with any kind of situation that was going on. Um, she always kind of had this like little smirk and mischievous look upon her face, which I really liked. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Now, our final category for the performances is Best Actor I went with Michael Keaton from Birdman, uh, and this is interesting because there are a few leads, but I feel overall this decade was more ensemble films, but I do believe Michael Keaton gave the best lead actor performance in Birdman. He really does sort of channel that manic energy of of someone who had played Batman 25 years earlier or a superhero of any kind, and sort of mirrors his own career where he was kind of dropped off after the Batman franchise. He kind of had a rough late nineties, early two thousands, and then slowly has been kind of making his way back. And we all remember why we love him so much. And he brings his trademark energy and wit and sarcasm while also, you know, clearly dealing with some, some mental health problems as well. And he kind of brings it all together. That's both very funny and also very serious at the same time. Yeah, he was great. He's also my pick. Um, I I feel like he was definitely the strongest of uh, among all the lead actors and really brought something, you know, interesting to the performance. He was basically playing like two versions of himself the entire time. And so, um, yeah, he uh, he was by far my favorite part of that movie, even though I'm not that big of a fan of the film. But um, like I mentioned earlier, he's the sole reason why I would watch it again. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. So now we're going to move on to our best pictures because the way this works is uh, we combine all of our, our rankings and then I use some uh, secret patent contrazoom pod mm-hmm. formulas to determine the winners. We don't necessarily agree on what the number one movie is. That said, Stephanie, what was your number one movie of this decade? So my number one movie of this decade happens to be the ContraZoom number one movie of this decade, which is Spotlight. Um, I really, really, 
appreciated it the second time around and what all the subtleties were doing and, and all these things that were happening in tandem of the story. So yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. And I think it's a really great piece of film. That's uh that's a terrific pick. Uh, Spotlight was my number two movie. I would probably call Spotlight maybe a top 15 all-time Best Picture winner, but my number one was Moonlight, which is probably a top three overall Best Picture winner in all 90 years. I just think this is a about as perfect of a movie as you can come by. Barry Jenkins has such control over his entire story. The fact that this diverse cast of people playing each other at different ages and only involved in one segment at a time, yet it feels so connected and there's such a vitality through everything. You just can't help but admire what Barry Jenkins has done. And you add in the the beautiful score and the stunning camera work and the gorgeous lighting and everything. Like you just can't help but, but really appreciate everything that Barry Jenkins does in this movie. And like, honestly, is it possible that maybe Mahershala Ali and Janelle Monet are both the coolest and most attractive couple ever? Um, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. Those are our picks for the awards for this decade from 2008 to 2017. Make sure you check out the show notes and ContraZoomPod.com where all of the listing and our awards will be there for you to see in case you want to remember anything that you had forgotten over the course of these two episodes. I want to thank Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. That's you. Uh, thank you to Aesthetic Magazine for presenting the show. Follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. And send me an email, ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. What was your favorite movie of this decade? Do you have any favorite picks as far as the performances go as well? And, uh, and as I said at the top of the show, if you rate and review us, send a screenshot to that email and I will add you to the list to send you some free swag. Yeah. So thank you so much for listening. This is our last best picture countdown for now. We're going to do uh, a best and worst sometime later this year. But other than that, it's, it's not going to be the regular stuff. That's why we kind of transitioned to doing the director rankings. We already did the Christopher Nolan one. And we've got a few more down the pipeline. I mentioned the housekeeping update episode where both Wes Anderson and Denis Villeneuve are on the docket to do. So it's going to be really cool to see how I can pivot to that. And I hope you all enjoy it too. Thank you for listening. <laughs> so, our next film coming in. Yeah. <laughs> Here you go.